Well, it's a great joy and a privilege to be here this morning and to bring to you God's Word. As Nick was saying, I was, had the privilege, joy, uh, Nick and myself, we spent two days together at uh, the Evangelical Fellowship of Congregational Churches Trust Board meeting on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, Tuesday, we had a day where the solicitor was really addressing us with all the various demands which are coming upon us as uh, a fellowship of churches. Um, one of the interesting statistics she'd brought out, I think it was, that there had been 44,000 pieces of legislation being brought out in the last 10 years. That's around about 4,000 pieces of legislation, and they've been rolled out on churches. And there's an awful matter, a lot of things that have grown up, grown, come into, into being, um, which affects us as churches. Uh, she picked up our agenda, which was a pack of paper, at least this thick, uh, which we were going to work through the next day, and she said, wow, you know, normally in normal work, we would never be able to get through that amount of gender. Um, it just brought home to me her words, and it brought home to me the fact, here I am this morning, and I would think back to Brian DuPont's days, when I was on the committee in, in 1991 and 92, and we're very indebted to Brian's foresight. Um, he was one of the first trustees of EFCC, and uh, not only of, of the Trust Corporation, he was one of the first trustees, of the fa one of the first men on the committee, but he had the foresight and the ability to put together the memorandum of the company. Uh, and it just crocked my mind as I was sat in down there and um, just thinking how much the work has developed. And we thank God for that uh, a grace and abilities. And we thank God that we've been able to pass it on. Because that's what we're doing. We're passing on the, the baton of truth from one generation to another. So it's a great joy for me that uh, Nick, your pastor, is serving the Lord in the Trust Corporation. And I can just say what an important role that role is for the whole work of the gospel within EFCC. So just make that uh, point first of all, and just to say thank you, Nick, for all your contributions and for your church for, for, for releasing him. It's no um, light task, shall I say. We, it, it's normally uh, seven, eight, seven hours, eight hours work of solid working through that agenda. Uh, and we thank God, driving there and driving back. So you're talking about a 12-hour, 13-hour day. But thank you, Nick, for your commitment in, those, in that area. Well, will you turn with me to the Mark's Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, and chapter 10 and verse 32. I am pleased in many ways that what I'm preaching on this morning is a lead for your, your preaching and evangelism in these next few weeks. And um, it's the passage of Scripture in which the Lord Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And uh, I'll read the verses, and then I'll just speak. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who, looked, who, those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests 
and the teachers of the law, they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. Do you like going on journeys, young people? Half terms here. I don't know about your family, what you got planned for next week. Uh, I know in our family, we were having a conversation last Friday, and we were thinking, what can we do as a family? And we got plans of going to Swindon and to explore the Great Western Railway Museum. Two, three, three, four grandchildren, and they at that age when they would like to do, well, go to such museums, and especially Grandad, who's got an engineering background, will find great delight in taking them there. Now, in all those things, isn't it, whenever we, we plan, whenever we say, well, we're going to go to such and such a place, wherever that such and such a place is, we have to do certain plans, don't we? We have to make certain arrangements, and uh, whether it's just a day's journey or whether it's a week's journey, you have to make your plans. If you're going abroad, you make your plans. So many people's plans have been thrown up in the air, haven't they, over this weekend? They've planned to go to some faraway exotic place, maybe Madeira or in Spain, and the flights are all booked. And then what's happened? Well, the storm has come in, and the ground flights have been grounded, and all the plans are drawn, gone to the floor, as it were. Yes, plans are very necessary. We plan where we're going to stay, we pack the right clothes, we make our plans for the journey, etc., whether it's an air flight and how we're going to get to the airport, how we're going to get from one place to the other, whatever it might be, we prepare. And even if we're making a journey from one part of the country to the other, we would normally be prepared. Uh, It was a bit of a joke in our house when our girls were growing up, once they got their driving license, and they were traveling around as parts of the country. Dad used to say to them, now, have you got your coat? Right? And Shirley's smiling at this, and the girls would say, oh, Dad, don't worry about these things. We're all right. Have you got a torch? You've got everything. And um, everything uh, would always say, have you got your coat? And, of course, that point never really hit home until one of the girls who was traveling back over the Pennines on the M62, the car broke down, and there was no heat in the car, and she was there for several hours in the middle of the early hours of the morning. And then she appreciated what Dad was saying. You got your coat. You need it. You never know what might happen. You've got to be prepared, haven't you? Like the Boy Scouts, be prepared. Now, our Lord Jesus, now we're thinking about planning a journey. Jesus was on a journey. The passage of Scripture which we have before us, our Lord Jesus was making this journey. And he was making a journey, as we're told, they they were on their way up to Jerusalem. Uh, In our Lord's time, transport was basic, and uh, men and women, there was by and large only one form of transport, and that was called Shanks' pony. You would walk. And uh, now when we have these words here, we might say, well, you know, Just read the words. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Now, it sounds very straightforward, but that journey was no straightforward journey. 
And uh, if you, I wish I had the maps of one thing or the other, but if you, I did look up uh, on Google, and I actually Googled the journey and the mountainous journey that it is. Just to give you practical ideas here, Jerusalem is to the west of the Dead Sea. If you've got your maps, you can go home and look at this. And what you find is that Jericho is just a few miles away from the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea, uh, the Dead Sea is a, a, a large, the Dead Sea is 1,200 feet below sea level, right? Get this, there's sea level there. The Dead Sea's down here. And Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. So you've got that? So here was our Lord making a journey from what would it be down the Dead Sea area up to Jerusalem of 3,000 feet. It's almost like, if you can use it in our understanding, uh, and of course it's a distance of about 14, 15 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. So you can almost imagine, just imagine, here's a Welshman here coming in here. Imagine Snowden. How many of you have been up Snowden? Oh, quite a few. You are right. Full marks, right? Well, it's almost like walking up Snowden. Snowden's just about 3,000 feet. And, you know, Snowden's no, it's quite a fair old pull, isn't it? You know, you, you know you've done a walk up the hill. But just imagine that. It's over a period of 14 miles. And... Uh, if you Google uh, maps, certainly I wish I'd had the, the actual able ability to do it, but when I Google it, you've got an idea of the mountainous terrain that our Lord would have traveled because those words there are very distinct there that the Lord was going up. Uh, you find that they, they were in the way going up. And the Greek word there speaks of this constant pushing themselves up. They were going up and they were determined to go up. They were on the way, going up. And also connected with that, that we read, not only was the Lord going up, and he was walking with great determination, but Jesus was going before. It's those particular emphasis. He was going up, and he was going before. Now, it is a reminder to us that the Jews at that time, for centuries, had made that journey of going up to Jerusalem. Three times in the year, they would travel to Jerusalem from whatever part of Israel they came. They would ascend up to Zion's hill. Uh, Thinking of a psalm, they would sing the psalms. uh, Psalm 122, come, uh, uh, of the fact that they would ascend to Mount Zion. It's put in the Psalm 122 in these words. We often sing it, come let us to the Lord our God. I rejoice when those who said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. And Jerusalem was on a mountain and the people of God realized they had to go up, physically up, to find God and to meet with God, to worship him. And here is our Lord. He's on that journey. He's making his way back to Jerusalem and he has that determination Jesus going before now that word before also reminds us that Jesus knew that he must go to Jerusalem there are other, there are other occasions in Matthew's gospel 
which we read earlier on, it speaks of Jesus must go. There was a divine imperative upon Jesus and he was going before them in such a way that the disciples were astonished. You'll see this. You can imagine it. And it, they weren't astonished because of his, of his ability to walk up that mountain with such determination and without, as it were, holding back. I don't know about you, if you'd go up a, a, the Snowden or whatever it is, maybe you've only gone up half a mile, you say, I've got to have a bit of a rest here, yeah? I'm flagged out, right? But here is our Lord, the words of the text seem to imply that there was something about Jesus which in his walking up that mountain, in his determination, which actually caused the disciples to be flabbergasted. They were astonished at his determination. And especially in the light that Jesus, the disciples knew that on previous occasions when Jesus had been in Jerusalem, the rulers of the, the synagogue had determined that they would put anyone who was a follower of Jesus out of the synagogue. They knew there was hatred and vehement uh, animosity against the Lord Jesus. So they were shocked by this. They were astonished. Look at the words there. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus going before them. And more than that, and the disciples were astonished. They were astonished. They were afraid. They were concerned. They were just astonished. It was no small thing to go to back to Jerusalem where the religious leaders were so antagonistic. I want us to notice my second point is the declaration of the Lord. The declaration of the Lord. And uh, we find the Lord says these words. Now, he makes a declaration, a very emphatic declaration. You don't necessarily see it in the translation that you've got before us uh, today. Uh, and, and it's made by these words. He then began in, in these words. It says, we are going up to Jerusalem. Sorry. With Jesus leading the way, disciples were astonished while those who followed him were afraid. It's interesting there, that's why they were afraid. There were some who were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside. Now, there's a point here. There was some point that he takes the twelve aside and he says to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And there's a little word in the text which is not translated and I think it's sad. And really, it is a reminder. That word, it's a word which is translated, it's uh, the word, lo, see, behold. This is something, and whenever that word is found in the text, it is really saying something quite significant and something which should cause us, wow, Jesus wants us to take hold of this. Behold. Remember the words there. Behold, a virgin shall conceive in the Old Testament. And the word, that word, lo, is significant. Behold. And the Lord wanted his disciples to realize he had something very special to say. And he has very, something very special for us here this morning to hear. These are not just a little sentence. Behold, this is something deliberate and something which is revealing God's great plan and mercy of mercy and grace. 
He used, the Lord uses that passage word many occasions. And he's drawing attention to a significant statement. Our Lord makes a declaration which he had made on two previous occasions. Now, I just want to remind you of this passage. These words which we've read are spoken about. Our Lord, on two earlier occasions, had said similar words which predicted his death and suffering. We find them first, if you just turn, your, uh, turn back a page into, Matthew, sorry, into Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 31. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 31. And this, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus' own name, speaking of his humanity and his deity, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, he's, the Lord made known that particular declaration after the occasion when Jesus had asked that question, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi. It's in that period of time what we call the retirement ministry, in this portion of scripture here, uh, from verse, chapter 7, verse 24, we find our Lord had gone out of Israel to Syria Phoenicia, into the Gentiles. And he was teaching and doing mighty miracles amongst the Gentiles. And he comes around from Tyre and Sidon, which is in the north, and he comes right the way back round into Caesarea Philippi, which again is in the north. And he asked that question. And throughout the, this period of retirement ministry, not that he was retired, he was constantly working, but he was taking himself away from the gaze of the Jews and he was making known the gospel to men and women who were outside of Israel, who were Gentiles, the ethnos, the Gentiles. And Jesus, during that time, was preparing his disciples for his eventual death and suffering. And he makes this plain to them. I must go up to Jerusalem. And he says it there. And if you, to the next portion of scripture, in which that say, those same words are say, said, uh, are, are also are found, uh, found in Matthew, Mark 8, verse 31, and in Mark 9, verse 31. Both 8 and 9, verse 31. Our Lord predicts his death, and his suffering. And on both occasions, our Lord gives less detail than he does here. On the other two occasions, he just happens to mention three things. On this occasion, he mentions seven specific things or awful events which would take place to him. He mentions seven items. Let's look at them. Let's look at the, what he says in, in the verses there. Back to Mark chapter 10 and verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed. The Son of Man. Jesus used that title 14 times in the scriptures. It's his own self-designating title, revealing and really who he is, and in another measure, concealing who he is. 
And the first thing I want to notice, he says about his betrayal. What he says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed. Now, just stop for a moment. Who is Jesus speaking to here? Well, he's speaking to the twelve, isn't he? He took the twelve and he said, the Son of Man will be betrayed. But who are the twelve? Who are amongst the twelve who was there? Well, you remember, Judas was there. And he heard these words. These words were said in the presence of Judas. The warning of betrayal. Let's just stop there for a moment. What pain comes when a person undermines and betrays you? Have you ever had that happen? Somebody has done something really unpleasant. Maybe they've divulged a confidence or they've betrayed a trust that you have in them. It's not easy, is it? Something really sad, something really precious, and they betray your confidence or they betray the trust that you've put in them. It's hard, isn't it? But how much more must it have been painful for Jesus to have said those words? Christ will be betrayed into the hands of chief priests and scribes. What an awesome thought this is. The pain that came through betrayal. But notice also, he will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Now, that was the religious leaders of the day. They were technically called, they recalled their name was, they were made up of 71 men, and they were called the Sanhedrin. They were the ruling council of Jerusalem. They had a real enormous power over all the Jews in that day. And the ordinary men and women of the world, all the Jews at that time, they feared them with great fear. You will be betrayed. But secondly, notice that what our Lord predicts is these words. That not only they will, they, the, the, they will betray him to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death. That's the second step. Jesus predicts that, Je that the Son of God will be condemned to death by the Sanhedrin, by these rulers, these religious rulers. And you remember that's what took place, that the Jewish leaders at that time, um, they, when Jesus was taken in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was bound and he was led to the religious leaders' court of that time, Caiaphas, and there Caiaphas found him and indeed judged him. And there he was condemned to death. Done in the middle of the night. Was never allowed to do it. It was against the religious laws of the day that a person should be tried at night. But Jesus was done in the middle of the night. And he was condemned to death. And the Jews, the religious leaders, we read 
The third point is, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. Why was Jesus handed over to the Gentiles? Now, don't forget, this is Jesus telling the disciples of the events of the crucifixion, of his condemnation, of his judgment, of, his, of, of the steps or by which he would be judged and found guilty and handed over to the Gentiles. Notice that word. Who were the Gentiles? They were the Roman leaders. They were the Roman rulers at that time. The, ruling, the rulers of the Jews, the Sanhedrin council, did not have the power to, con, 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 to execute a man. It had to be agreed by the Romans of the day. And that's why it said he will be handed over to the Gentiles. Quite significant statements here. But it highlights step by step Jesus is highlighting, predicting his suffering so clearly. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. And not only do we read that, they will, who, the Gentiles, will mock him and spit on him. Notice those words. And if you just turn over to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15... You see how significant, how these words are fulfilled. Mark 15, verses 16 to 20. I'll just read the words. The soldiers, we read, they, they, they got him a purple robe on him, verse 17. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set in on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Were they saying that with any sort of sincerity? Of course not. They were mocking Christ. They mocked him. And notice that, again, they struck him on the head. And they, what does it say? They spat on him. Do you see the significance? Here is our Lord predicting they will mock him and they will spit on him. But more than that, they will flog him. Now, of course, this wasn't any caning. When I was brought up, cane, the, the, if you did something wrong in school, you could expect the cane, right? Six of the best, right? If a person really did something bad, that's what would happen. But this was no normal caning. The word here is the word scourging. And a scourge, a person was only scourged when they were condemned to death. The particular whip, something like a cat of nine tails, which you've probably seen when you go down to um, uh, Portsmouth and maybe walked around um, HMS Victoria, uh, uh, Victory rather, Victoria, Victory, and there's the, there is, you'll see a, a, a cat of nine tails, a whip. But it was far worse than that, because in the cat of nine tails, uh, in the, the scourging, the whips that the Romans used to make, they used to put pieces of brass on the end part, and they would put parts of bone, sharp bone, into the ends, and they would use that. And normally, when a person was scourged, it would be done by two men, whereby they, one would hit them, and then another, and then another. And many men have died under a scourging. As the Lord says, they will scourge him. 
The Gentiles would mock him, would spit on him, they would scourge him. More than that. And then we read, they will kill him. They will kill him. And you turn over to Mark Mark 15, verse 24 to 37. We read these words. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. It's almost like a drug to deaden the pain. And Jesus did not take it. And they, that's the Gentiles, they crucified him. They crucified him. That's six elements to the prediction. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Our Lord ends this awesome prediction of his death by a most wonderful statement. Three days later, he will rise again. This prediction, as with the other predictions, ends with a note of triumph to the disciples. On that third day, he will rise again. It's reminding us that death cannot be defeated. Death can be defeated. The Lord makes plain what will happen. That which is the king of terrors and the terror of kings will one day and was defeat, will be defeated by King Jesus. What a truth that is. No wonder we should be joyful this morning when we think about the fact that Christ is alive forevermore because Christ's resurrection reminds us that death is defeated. That we're of all men most blessed when we know Christ as our Savior because we, he, he, Jesus has defeated death itself. What a straight statement these are. The preciseness of this declaration, the definiteness of it, those seven elements. He will be betrayed to the chief priests and the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and they will spit on him and they will flog him and they will crucify him. And wonderfully, he will rise from the dead. Thanks God be to God for that glorious statement that Christ is alive. And uh, thinking of that truth where we find in 1 Corinthians 15 those wonderful words, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Because Christ is alive I have hope and you have hope for time and eternity. And if he wasn't alive, we'd be of all men and women most miserable. Life would be meaningless. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. But because he lives, we know, as the hymn puts it, we can face tomorrow, not only tomorrow for next week, but eternity. Have you got that hope this morning? Have you got that confidence? That Christ died for your sins? I think it's quite significant 
that uh, Nick was at that point this morning. I've just I jotted down what you were looking at this morning. And uh, in why did Christ willingly, why did Christ die for us? You remember the answer? To deliver us from the power and remedy of sin. To deliver us from the power and remedy of sin and bring us back to God. Put you back to God. Put your name there. He died to deliver me from the power of sin which is in my life. The wrong thoughts that we have. The wrong actions. The wrong attitudes. Jesus came to deal with them. And to deal with the guilt which we all have incurred. Because we have all sinned and come short of the standard which God requires. He died for me. Is that your hope this morning? Is that your confidence? That Jesus died for me. Blessed be his name. Is something which should thrill your soul. That my sins not in part but the whole are nailed to his cross and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. It's this is the confidence as Christians we can have. That Jesus died for my sins. Are you believing that this morning? Let's look at the response. Finally, just look at the, the disciples' response. To that statement. Now we're not told in this portion of scripture. What the disciples response was. But one of the amazing things about scripture. Is we often get light thrown on events. From other portions of scripture. And if you turn over to Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18. We find these words. uh, That our Lord says. Give you the words. Luke 18, verse 34. I lost but the reference for a moment. Luke 18, 34. Uh, again, this is uh, the record of Luke, which is of similar to that of Mark. It relates the prediction of our Lord's going up to Jerusalem. Everything was written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Verse 34, the, you've got the verse, I hope you're looking it up, right? It's important to follow the Bible, not what the pastor says, make sure the Bible says it, okay? The disciples did not understand any of this. Interesting, isn't it? He'd already told them twice. They didn't understand it. Its meaning was hidden from them. The definiteness of that declaration, it wasn't uh, sometimes like pastors can be a bit obscure in their preaching and think, I didn't know what he was on about this morning. I hope that's not, I'm sure that's not with your case, with your pastor, but you know that sort of situation, right? But we can have that, can't we? It wasn't the fact that the Lord Jesus wasn't clear. He was clear. But the truth was hidden from their eyes. And do you remember that it was on the resurrection morning that 
Remember who first declared to Mary that Jesus was alive? Who was it? Well, it was the angel, wasn't it? And what did the angel say? Remember that the angel actually says and brings to mind that prediction. Luke 24, verse 7, the words of the angel, where we find these words that the angel says, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to him, what the men, that's the angels, said to him, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen from the dead. Remember. Oh, what a wonderful word remember is. Remember. How he told you. While he was still with you. In Galilee, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Here the Holy Spirit took those words through the words of the angels, and then they understood it. They saw it. Clearly. Their eyes were opened. He is alive. Jesus died for our sins. Peter could say Christ once suffered for sins, the just one for the unjust. Why? To bring us to God. Blessed be his name. They understood it. Have you understood it? Have your eyes been opened? Have you grasped the fact? It's not your good works. It's not your church going. It's nothing you can do or say. Why? Because your sins have blossomed. Your sins are so great. You're an enemy to God. But Jesus took them all. And as Nick reminded us in that wonderful vivid illustration, with that covering, what was it, Patanium? I've forgotten. Patanium. Quite amazing. It? My friend, something, Jesus had something even more wonderful. Jesus absorbed all the punishment which is due for me on that cross so that I might be forgiven. Remember that hymn, there is no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate. No one else. Christ alone. He's my saviour. He alone could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. My friends, this morning, are you, is your trust in the saviour? When we consider, now there are some I could say here, some would say, well, Jesus was, uh, this is just the, at the time, there would be some who would not accept these words as being stated by our Lord prior to his death. This is a Mark and Luke say, writing it after the event. My friends, why should not we believe these words? What is, did not our Lord Jesus have perfect knowledge. Did not the Lord, when he was speaking to the woman at the well and spoke to her and said, you have five husbands and the one you're living with is not your husband. Jesus knew her state. He knows your state. I don't know you. I've seen you from different times. Your pastor would have a good knowledge of you, right? But he doesn't know everything, does he? But Jesus has a perfect knowledge he knows all things. All things are open and bare before him. 
Did not our Lord tell his disciples that he, he was going up to Jerusalem? Did not our Lord tell his disciples just shortly after this? And when he said to his disciples, go up to Jerusalem and you will see two men carrying a, a pitcher of water. Now, it's a reminder then that this, the, the social interactions of men and women. Men didn't carry water in those days. They didn't do the kitchen work, right? They didn't share 50-50 in chores. To see a man carrying a pitcher of water, that was quite something. And tell them, the master has need of it. And they needed that home. And these two men, these disciples went and they saw the man carrying the pitcher of water. And the, the man has prepared in a room. Our Lord knew all things. That's the point I'm making. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows every detail. Did not our Lord, when our Lord was questioned about whether or not Jesus could pay the temple tax. Do you remember that remarkable incident that Jesus says to Peter, Peter, go down, into the, go down to Galilee. Get your fishing rod out. Cast your rod out. And the first fish you catch, take it. Open its mouth. And there you will find a coin in it which will pay the temple tax. Doesn't that show the knowledge of our Lord? He knows all things. Why should not we believe that and trust him who died for us on that cross of Calvary? The one who's done that, who's able to predict the very nature, not only of his death, but of the fall of Jerusalem. Would not Christ be able to know also for such an hour he came. My friends, are you, if you're in doubt this morning, doubt no more. Doubt no more. Because I say to you in the authority of God's word that your greatest need is to turn to him and to say, Lord Jesus, I need you to be my saviour and my Lord to take my sin and my guilt and take it all away. My friends, if you've never done that this morning, don't leave this place without calling unto him and saying, Lord, save me, a sinner. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who went to the cross of Calvary for our sins. We thank you for his death on that cross. We thank you for his, Jesus' perfect knowledge. He could predict his own death and sufferings, but also his resurrection. And we bless you that we serve a risen Saviour who seated at the Father's right hand and all power has been given unto him. Lord, we worship and we adore you. And we ask, O oh Lord, that if there are any here this morning that haven't come to that place of seeing that you know them, O oh Lord, speak to them, Lord, we pray, and bring light and life to their hearts to know you, who to know is life eternal. O oh Lord, do it, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.